Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here, worship together with you. I wanted to just uh, mention two brief things before we uh, turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Number one is on Wednesday, uh, I'm going to begin teaching a course called Before You Launch. It's for juniors and seniors in high school, as well as those who have kind of recently launched out on their own uh, into adult life, so kind of those early uh, out on your own years. Uh, So if you're in that age range, I want to invite you to join us on Wednesdays. Uh, We're doing a course called Before You Launch. It's kind of a checklist of things that need to be in place for launching out on your own to be successful. Spiritually, we're going to go through 10 different topics, kind of a a kind of pre-flight checklist, uh, counting down from 10 uh, all the way down to one, going over our spiritual lives, um, convictions about relationships, um, financial matters, decision-making, all kinds of things that are needed uh, to be successful uh, in life. So if you're in that age range or know someone who is, I invite you to join us on Wednesdays. Also wanted to uh, just uh, briefly share with the congregation, just had uh, in between services, had an opportunity to uh, speak with uh, Nick Niebuhr. I know many of you have been praying for him as, uh, as he as a young man has been battling uh, cancer. And uh, he just shared with me uh, not only what the Lord has uh, done for him so marvelously uh, in his physical recovery, uh, but just also just the, the spiritual lessons uh, that the Lord has taught him in terms of entrusting his life uh, to the Lord. And uh, it was just such a blessing to... Uh, Uh, see uh, the spiritual encouragement uh, that he both has received from the Lord and uh, is sharing with others. So just wanted to share that update and praise uh, with you. Well, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 again this morning, and we're studying the book of Isaiah, and and we're taking our time in chapter 1 because chapter 1 really lays out the themes for the whole book. So we're doing several messages on chapter 1, and then we're kind of going to study the book in large chunks uh, as we go through, and then we'll pause again for a more detailed study of some other key passages such as, as Isaiah chapter 53. But before the holidays, we looked at the structure and the context of and the themes of chapter 1, and then we began our study of the text, and we left off at the end of verse 17. And so this morning, we're picking up where we left off in verse 18, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 20, which are both the culmination of the first discourse in the book and give us the primary theme of the whole book. I really believe that Isaiah chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 could be characterized as the theme of the book of Isaiah. So let's read together Isaiah chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's important to study each passage in its context. So I want to just briefly review, because we left off before the holidays, I want to briefly review what we've already seen in our study of chapter 1, just to refresh your memory of where this verse appears in the context. If you remember, in verses 2 through 9, Judah's crime is indicted, and the indictment against them is that they were guilty of irrational rebellion. 
And so God issues to his rebellious people an indignant reprimand. That's in verses five through nine. And then that led into a second section in this passage, which is that Judah's excuse is invalidated in verses 10 through 15. They thought their religious traditions excused their evil deeds, but God declares this excuse to be invalid and confronts them for the hypocrisy of their insincere religion. So then after their crime is indicted in verses two through nine and their excuse is invalidated in verses 10 through 15, we come now to the third section of that first discourse in which Judah's repentance is invited. And so you have these three major sections in the first discourse. Judah's crime is indicted in verses two through nine. Their excuse is invalidated in verses 10 through 15. And now their repentance is invited in verses 16 through 20. And if you remember from last time, the section in which God invites their repentance begins with instructions for repentance. Verses 16 through 17 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. So God gives them instructions for repentance in verses 16 through 17. And that brings us now to our text for today, which is verses 18 through 20, which is an invitation to reason. After giving them instructions for repentance, God now gives them an invitation to reason and to a particular kind of reasoning, reasoning together with him. Let's read the text again. Isaiah chapter one, verses 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So I want to begin this morning and really focus through most of the message on that initial phrase in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together. Now this verse is a really important verse for our understanding of biblical epistemology. And when I said that, you all said biblical what? Well, biblical epistemology. What is epistemology? Well, the term epistemology comes from the Greek term episteme, which means to know. It means specifically to know how to do something or to know about something. So epistemology, simply defined, is the study of knowledge. It's the study of the origin of knowledge, the nature of knowledge, and the acquisition of knowledge. How do we know what we know? What is knowledge, and how is knowledge obtained? How can we know that what we think we know is actually true? In other words, epistemology is the study of human reason and of human understanding, human knowledge. And that's why verse 18 is so important for a Christian understanding of epistemology because here God says, come and let us reason together. Let us reason together. And there are two key truths about human knowledge and human reason, two key components of a Christian view of epistemology that we can infer from this context. 
First, the invitation to come implies that humanity has strayed away from true reason. They need to come to God. They need to come in order to reason together. Something has separated man from God and prevented them from reasoning together. So the invitation to come implies humanity has strayed away from true reason. Secondly, the invitation to reason together with God implies that we cannot reason properly apart from God. A human being who is separated from God cannot reason properly. Now, both of those premises are inferred here in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and they're taught very, very explicitly in multiple other places in Scripture, and I want to show you just a few of those. There are multiple texts that clearly teach that humanity has strayed away from true reason. And I want to ask you to turn to one of the primary texts on this, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, turn there if you will, verses 18 through 32. And as we read this passage, I want you to notice what this passage says about the consequences of the fall of man into sin on the human mind and on human understanding, on human reasoning. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a vital concept. It says that people suppress the truth. It's they take the truth and they push it out of mind or they, or they push it down and away from them. And why do they do that? It's because of their unrighteousness. In other words, the truth is inconvenient to them. It is a barrier to them to be able to live the way they want to live. So they suppress the truth so that they can live unrighteously. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's not a lack of information, it's a lack of reception of that information. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Again, The evidence is there. It's sufficient evidence. God's made it evident within them and to them through the creation and through putting eternity in their heart, as the book of Ecclesiastes says. And so human beings understand these things, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 21 says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now notice it says they 
became fools. Their heart was darkened. This is pointing back to the original creation in which man is made in the image and likeness of God with this incredible rational mind that is a reflection of God's rationality. And that mind functioned well and functioned rightly. And the information that they had was used rightly for good things, for righteous things, for moral things. But when man fell into sin, he not only fell into moral degradation he fell into intellectual depravity they knew God but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks and so as a consequence of that they became futile in their speculations throughout human history there's been thousands of human speculations about how the world got here and what its purpose is and what the right way to live is and how to overcome death and all of those things and all of them are futile speculations none of them can save none of them can extend human life none of them can grant eternal life they're futile and it says as another consequence their foolish heart was darkened They claimed to be wise, but they became, because of the fall of man into sin, human beings became fools in the true sense of the word. They exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, right? They began to worship idols. And verse 24 says, therefore God gave them over, right? This is a judicial judgment. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why? Why did God give them over this judicial handing over? Verse 25, for, right, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They traded God's truth for a lie. And of course, Jesus said Satan is the father of lies. So human beings have made a trade. We have traded God's truth for Satan's lies. That has epistemological consequences it has consequences on the way that human reason functions and what it is used for I want you to think for a moment about the greatest evils perpetuated in human history did they happen because the perpetrators lacked intelligence oh no take the holocaust for example they actually used cutting edge technology to efficiently and on a massive scale never known before on earth exterminate people. It was highly intelligent people using their intelligence for horrific evils. He goes on in Verse 26, because they traded the truth of God for a lie, he says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but also give hearty approval to others who practice them. So here's this long list of evils, and you, you see these are the things that make this world so often a miserable place full of so much suffering. Well, where does it all come from? It says it comes from a depraved mind. The mind of man is twisted and depraved. That intelligence that we were given by the creator is often used to scheme evil, to carry out evil. And those evils often make no sense. We use the intelligence of our mind to insult and offend and hurt those we love. We use our minds to plan wicked deeds and to carry them out. Our intelligence has now moved away from being pointed towards righteousness to being pointed towards evil. There's epistemological consequences of the fall of man into sin. Listen to how, you don't need to turn there, but listen to how 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 through 4 describes the intellectual consequences of evil. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. See, they trade the truth of God for a lie. They turn their ears away from the truth and turn their ears towards myths. We want the lies. We love the lies. We suppress the truth. Why? Because we don't want to live according to the righteousness which is dictated by truth. We want to live wickedly and for that we need lies. We need self-justifications. We need excuses. We need ideologies. We need false religions. We need false doctrines. We need ways to justify our evil deeds. And this corrupts and pollutes the human mind. These and many, many other texts clearly teach that humanity has strayed away from true reason. When we fell into sin, we fell away from reason. When we fell into sin, we fell away from true reason. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, our thinking became futile, our foolish heart was darkened, our minds became twisted, and our minds became depraved. That's why when we go back to Isaiah chapter one, in verse three, God says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. They don't know and they don't understand. And they don't know and they don't understand things, he says, that even an ox and a donkey know and understand, which is who, who puts food in the manger? Who keeps you alive? Who sustains you and gives you your daily bread? From whom does it come? Even an ox and a donkey knows the one that feeds it. That we so often don't know and don't understand. In other words, 
The fall of man into sin had serious epistemological consequences. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Here's the path, the shepherd's path. And each of us has turned and said, No, I know a better way than the shepherd does. I know a better way than the creator does. And then some of us decide that we're gurus or religious leaders and we choose our own way and we not only go that way, we tell others to follow us and we lead them right off the cliff we're heading towards. We have strayed from the truth like sheep. And when a sheep strays off the path, goes its own way, it becomes prey for wolves. They get caught in thickets. They fall off cliffs. Disaster awaits when we go our own way. Our reason has been corrupted, and we have become lost in the darkness like a sheep who has gone astray. And so here we all are. We've all gone our own way, and so at some point, the sheep kind of realizes he's lost. He starts saying, well, how do I find the right way? So he starts listening. Maybe someone else knows the right way. And one sheep baths to another, this is the way, this is the right way, and another one's here. And in all the cacophony of voices, people are saying, how do I know what the truth is? How do I know which way to go? There's so many voices, so many religions, so many philosophies, so many ideas, so many suggestions. Who knows the way? And in the midst of the cacophony, there's one voice, the voice of the shepherd. And he says, come. And let us reason together. He calls to the confused, come. He calls to the desperate, come. He calls to those in darkness, come. Come to the truth. Come to the light. Come to the straight and narrow path. Come to my voice. Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. I want to draw your attention to that word together. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. That word together reminds us of what so many passages teach, namely that we cannot reason properly apart from God. Separated from God, we cannot reason properly. In other words, if we do not come, if we don't reason together with God, then we have cut ourselves off from the only source of true reason and have therefore consigned ourselves to be deceived by lies and lost in confusion. Theologians speak of something which is called the noetic effects of sin. No, noetic is referring to the mind. There's effects on the mind when we sin. I want you to think about how unreasonable and irrational sin is. Is it reasonable or rational to ingest a poison which reduces your intellectual capacity to that of a stumbling, bumbling, irrational fool. Is that reasonable? It is not. And yet, 
Millions and millions do this on a regular basis. Is it rational or reasonable to inject a substance into your veins which absolutely destroys you from the inside out? It's neither reasonable nor rational. Is it reasonable or rational to sacrifice your family for a few moments of illicit pleasure? It is not rational nor reasonable. Human sin is inherently irrational and unreasonable. We even have a phrase for it. Ah, that was pretty stupid. Yeah, it was. It was actually really stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Sin can take the most intelligent person and make them stupid. Sin has an effect on the mind. And when we talk about the noetic effects of sins, we're saying that sin darkens the intellect. It twists the mind and it clouds our ability to reason. I wasn't thinking. Why did you do that? I wasn't thinking. Yeah, that's right. Our problem is not just that we will not reason properly without God, but that we cannot reason properly without God. When we chose the devil, we chose deception. And when we choose iniquity, we choose ignorance. At the fall of man, man had a choice to believe God and follow the way of truth or to believe Satan and follow the ways of lies. And when we chose the devil, we chose deception. When we chose iniquity, we chose ignorance. Sin, by both its nature and its consequences is irrational. It's illogical, it's unreasonable. It leads us into darkness. And so our problem is not just that we do not know the truth, it's that we cannot know the truth on our own apart from God. The mind which is alienated from God is alienated from truth itself. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the truth. If you are separated from Christ, you are separated from the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you are apart from him, you are apart from the way, you are apart from the truth, and you are apart from life. I want you to listen to how scripture describes the irrationality and the inability which has come upon humanity because of the fall of man into sin. In Ephesians chapter two, I'll just read you a few texts quickly. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. Listen to the description of man's condition post-fall. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You're dead in sin and enslaved to the devil. Verse three, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. See, the fall of man corrupted our flesh and our mind. And we became children of wrath. Chapter four of Ephesians verse 17 says, I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. 
being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is the human condition. Futility of mind, darkened understanding, being excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. A hard heart leads to an ignorant mind. And a hard heart and an ignorant mind leads to absolute enslavement to sensuality where every kind of impurity is practiced and practiced, the scripture says, with greediness continual lust for more. First Corinthians continues the scripture's discussion of the irrationality of sin and the inability of the sinner to extract himself from that irrationality. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? So When you're separated from God, that which is right and true seems foolish to you. That which is a lie and leads to destruction seems wise and grand. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is he saying here? He's saying, look, take the highest wisdom of man and the greatest strength of man and compare it if you were intellectually for sake of example to the weakness of God or the, the, the lowest strength of God and he's saying they're not even comparable the highest wisdom of man is infinitely below the lowest wisdom of God the highest power of man is infinitely below the lowest power of God The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying you're not even on his level. You're not even on the right playing field. You're so far below. Chapter two, verse 14 says, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And listen, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Right? He's you know like a you know a computer with you know no CPU. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is the noetic effects of sin. When you're cut off from God, you are cut off not only from the source of the truth but from the one who is the truth. This is why Jesus asks 
an epistemological question in John chapter 8, a question about knowledge. In John chapter 8, verse 43, he says this, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. So why can't they understand? Because they can't hear. Why can't they hear? Jesus answers. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus is the truth and Satan is a liar and there's no truth in him but you want his desires. You want to follow his ways. You want to go his path. That's why you can't understand what I'm saying. That's why you can't understand my word. In verse 45, Jesus says, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Think about that. Because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. See, you don't want the truth. You want the lie. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You trade the truth of God for a lie. Why? Because The devil's lies say that the way you're living and what you want to do is perfectly fine. Indulge. It's even a good thing, Satan says. Sin is irrational and causes us to descend into darkness, into a futile mind, futile speculations, a darkened heart, a darkened understanding, and a depraved mind. You know, if people realize that, they start to really seek God. So what does Satan and his worldly propaganda do? Well, they work hard to make lies look wise and the truth look foolish. They try hard to make lies look wise and the truth look foolish. But the reality is that reason itself depends on the rationality of the creator. Reason itself depends on the rationality of the creator. You know, the next time someone says, well, I can't can't believe in God, I can't believe in salvation through Christ, it doesn't make sense to me, it's illogical or it's not reasonable to me you need to challenge them upon what basis do they even believe that reason and logic exist. They will talk about laws of logic. From where do laws of logic come? And upon what basis are they universal? Take, for example, you're speaking with an atheist who holds to the futile speculation that everything developed by evolutionary processes. He's telling you he thinks the Christian faith is irrational, unreasonable, illogical. But take his worldview and build a theory of knowledge from it. If human reason is nothing more than a bunch of chemicals bouncing into each other in a hominid skull that evolved by accident on a pale blue dot floating in the infinite void of a universe purely formed by chance, then what Solomon said when he examined the wisdom of the world would be true when he said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. 
See, once you step off the foundation of reason, the entire building collapses and God is the foundation. If all human reasoning and even human love are accidental chemical processes that arose purely by chance in a universe governed by nothing and no one, upon what basis can we know anything for sure? It's just one chemical. Your best rational thought is just one chemical or electrical impulse bouncing into another. That's the secular worldview. No wonder their thinking descends into absolute chaos and the rejection of things which are so obvious even from the created order. Step off the foundation of reason and the entire building collapses. You descend into darkness and the embracing of myths and lies. Why is God the only possible foundation for true reason? Why? I want you to think a little bit about the nature of human beings. I hope that uh, even our secular atheist friends would acknowledge that human beings are finite. We are finite creatures. We are not infinite. We are finite. What does that mean? It means that we can never solve all the unknown variables. That's what it means. You know, for those who are mathematicians, I mean, you know, using all the equations, and I know some of you are very advanced, I mean, you can solve for some unknown variables, can't you? But you add enough unknown variables and the equation becomes unsolvable. Because we are finite, we can't solve and we can never solve all the unknown variables. We have a second problem. Not only are we finite, we're fallen. And because we are fallen, we often draw the wrong conclusions from the data that is available to us. Even the way we conclude and use the known variables is corrupted morally by our sinfulness. That's why we can talk about people like evil geniuses. They're geniuses. They take the data and then use it to destroy to do great harm, to commit great evils. We are finite and we are fallen. That's why our own minds can't be the foundation for true reason. But it gets even worse. I want you to think about our finiteness and our fallenness and its implications. Because we are finite, not only can we never solve all the unknown variables, we can't even be sure how many unknown variables there are. Nor can we know how each unknown variable will affect our current understanding once they are discovered and become known. The undeniable reality of the human condition is that we simply don't know what we don't know. It's not just that we don't know. We don't even know what we don't know. I, you've heard me mention this before, but I want you to consider for a moment how much of all knowledge you know. Think about all knowledge. Right now, there's several million people living in Nairobi, Kenya. Do you know everything that's happening in, in Nairobi, Kenya? Do you know everything that's happening in, happening in Jakarta? Do you know this is just our planet? And there's a huge universe with 
even unknown and undiscovered galaxies and galaxies upon galaxies. You know only a small slice of what's even happening in this room. And you know nothing of what happened in this world before you. You know even less of what will happen after you. Your finitude, the fact that you are finite, makes the amount of all possible knowledge that you can know so infinitesimally small that we couldn't put an actual percentage on it. It's like our life, it's a vapor. And you're going to build actual reason and knowledge upon that? It gets even worse. Even the tiny amount of knowledge we do know, we often twist, deny, or misuse because of the deceitfulness of sin. Do you live up to everything you do know? There's so much you don't know, and you don't even live up to what you do know. You know you shouldn't, that junk food isn't healthy for you. Do you live up to that knowledge? Can you live up to that knowledge? Without God, human reason has no viable foundation. Our finitude and our fallenness make it impossible for autonomous human reason to be the foundation upon which true knowledge is based. That's why the human philosophers say that certainty is impossible. Why? Because how can you be certain about anything when you know so little? Of all there is to know, you know such an infinitesimally small amount that you can't be certain about anything by the functioning of your own autonomous human reason. Well, how can there be then knowledge? I mean, does the whole edifice of epistemology, the study of knowledge, just crumble away? There is one hope, and it's in a simple phrase that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What can the foundation be? Well, God, unlike us, is infinite. And God, unlike us, is holy. God is all-knowing. So there's no unknown variables to him. There's no unsolved variables. There's nothing about which he is uncertain. God is also holy, and so his moral perfection provides a solid foundation for all truth. He knows true knowledge, and then it is used for righteousness and holiness. He's a righteous genius, not an evil genius. And he's not just a genius, he is omniscient, all-knowing. So apart from him, we would be lost in impenetrable darkness. It is only on the foundation of an omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, present everywhere, divine being who has full knowledge of all things and is morally perfect in his holiness. That is the only solid foundation for true reason. And that's why the scripture asserts strongly exactly that. Proverbs Chapter 1, the book about wisdom and knowledge begins with the following words. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's saying, look, there's only one foundation you can build true knowledge on, and that is on your creator. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, puts the same thought in a little different way. Put it a little differently. Proverbs 9 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Do you, do you see the equation being made there? The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you don't know the Holy One, you have no true understanding. This is why G Jesus could say that a small child who knows God has greater understanding than the genius scholar who doesn't. Because the child with a childlike faith standing on the solid foundation of true reason is wiser than the three PhD fool who has rejected the foundation of all reason and of all knowledge and of all truth and has tried with his little six pound brain that lives for 70 years out of all human history in one little place out of all that exists in the universe to figure it all out. Who is the fool? And who is the wise one? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so James exhorts us to ask God for wisdom and exhorts us and tells us that worldly wisdom produces only jealousy and strife and all of this. The knowledge of man and the wisdom of man creates only the misery that we experience. Do you want wisdom which will produce something glorious? You're not gonna find it by looking down to man. You'll find it by looking up to God. James chapter three, verse 17 says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, gentle reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And he says, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want something pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Look to divine wisdom, not human wisdom. The only way to have true knowledge is to heed God's invitation so graciously given in Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come and let us reason together says the Lord. Well, from verse 18, we've seen that we cannot reason properly if we remain separated from God. We have to come to him and reason together with him. We have to place our created reason and logic on the foundation of his uncreated reason and logic. Our finite reason and logic on the foundation of his infinite reason and logic. But how do we do that? How do we come and reason together with God? Well, a closer examination of the word reason which God uses in verse 18 is gonna point us towards the answer to that question. The word reason used there was commonly used in judicial context and this passage itself is a judicial context. Remember, this is a court case in the Supreme Court of the universe and God is saying in the context of the court as he's judging Judah, he's saying come and let us reason together. It's the judge beckoning the accused to approach the bench. This word reason was used in judicial context to refer to opposing parties rationally examining the facts of the case, discussing the requirements and ramifications of the law, and agreeing upon a just and righteous way to settle the dispute. To put it in our modern vernacular, by inviting them to come and reason together, God is exhorting them to plead guilty and to accept the plea deal he is graciously offering to them. He's saying, approach the bench, come. 
Now let's be reasonable together. Let's come to the truth. He's essentially saying to Judah, look, since you've violated the covenant, you need to admit your guilt, you need to repent, and you need to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. And the good news is if you will do that, he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. Approach the bench, acknowledge your guilt, throw yourself on the mercy of the court, and the judge will be merciful. This judge is a merciful one. Though your skins are as scarlet and you are guilty, you'll be washed, you'll be cleansed. I think this text echoes what David wrote earlier in Psalm 51, verse 7, when he prayed and asked God, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God is inviting Judah to repent and to be cleansed. Then in verses 19 through 20, he tells them what will happen if they do repent and what will happen if they don't repent. And he basically says, there's a clear choice here. You will choose one of these two results. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want you to notice that the same Hebrew word which English translations translate as to eat or to devour or to consume appears in both verses 19 and 20. So there's a a parallel play on words here. If you consent and obey, you will eat, but if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten. You will devour or you'll be devoured. You will consume or you will be consumed. Eat or be eaten. Consume or be consumed. Devour or be devoured. The choice is up to you. Consent and obey. You'll eat the best of the land. Refuse and rebel and you will be eaten by the sword. If you consent to the judge's verdict, if you consent to the judge's verdict and repent, you will receive pardon and eat the blessings of the covenant. If you reject the judge's verdict and refuse to repent, you will be eaten by the curses of the covenant. You will either eat the blessings of the covenant or be eaten by the curses of the covenant. You choose. This is a clear reference to what was written in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 30. A great passage which is so poignant, chapter uh, Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 through 20. Listen to what God had told them way at the beginning. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you. See this? Remember back in verse two, right? Heaven and earth are called to be witnesses. Here is the law in Deuteronomy 30. They're being confronted in the court for their violation of this exact passage. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Well, how do you choose life? He explains in verse 20. You choose life by loving the Lord your God 
by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. God is saying in Isaiah chapter one to the people of Judah, what will you choose, life or death, the blessing or the curse? That same choice, blessing or cursing, life or death is reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament when he says, enter through the narrow gate. For broad is the road that leads to destruction and many go down that road. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Only a few find it. Two choices, life and death. The blessing and the curse choose you this day whom you will serve. Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. And after he gives this invitation, that first discourse ends with the phrase, truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What will you do with what the Lord has spoken to you? As we've gone through this first discourse, we've seen Judah's crime indicted, we've seen their excuses invalidated, and we've seen their repentance invited. The New Testament says that those things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, 1 Corinthians ten eleven. What will you do with what has been written down for your instruction? May you heed it. May you hear it. May you respond to it. Come, let us reason together. Lord, we do ask that we would not only hear but heed this marvelous invitation that you, the creator, the holy one, would beckon to us the fallen and the sinful to come. That itself is amazing. That you would invite us to come and to reason together with you to place the foundation of our reasoning upon the solid rock of yours. This is a marvelous invitation. May none turn it away. And then, Lord, the promise that if we will do that, if we will approach the bench and plead guilty and throw ourselves on the mercy of the court that not only will we receive mercy but you will wipe away our sins and transgressions and make them as if they had never been by imputing them to Christ and imputing his righteousness to us. Lord, these are marvelous truths of great news, of great joy for all the people. May none turn it away. May none reject it. May none refuse it. May all come to you in repentant faith and receive grace and life and a foundation for truth that will withstand all the test of time. So I pray for each one in Jesus' name, amen.